four. As Oleron sat by his fire that evening, pondering Miss Bengough's prognostication that difficulties awaited him in his work, he came to the conclusion that it would have been far better had she kept her beliefs to herself. No man does a thing better for having his confidence stamped at the outset, and to speak of difficulties is in a sense to make them. Speech itself becomes a deterrent act, to which other discouragements accrete until the very event of which warning is given is as likely as not to come to pass. He heartily confounded her, an influence hostile to the completion of Romilly had been born, and in some illogical, dogmatic way women seemed to have, she had attached this antagonistic influence to his new abode. Was ever anything so absurd? You'll never finish Romilly here. Why not? Was this her idea of the luxury that saps the springs of action and brings a man down to indolence and dropping out of the race? The place was well enough. It was entirely charming for the matter, but it wasn't so demoralising as all that. No, Elsie had missed a mark that time. He moved his chair to look around the room that smiled, positively smiled in the firelight. He too smiled, as if pity was to be entertained for a maligned apartment. Even that slight lack of robust colour he had remarked was not noticeable in the soft glow. The drawn chintz curtains, they had a flowered and trellised pattern, with baskets and oaten pipes, fell in long, quiet folds to the window seats. The rows of bindings in old bookcases took the light richly. The last trace of sallowness had gone with the daylight, and if the truth must be told, it had been Elsie herself who had seemed a little out of the picture. That reflection struck him a little, and presently he returned to it. Yes, the room had, quite accidentally, done Miss Bengough a disservice that afternoon. It had, in some subtle but unmistakable way, placed her, marked a contrast of qualities. Assuming for the sake of argument the slightly ridiculous proposition that the room in which Oleron sat was characterised by a certain sparsity and lack of vigour, so much the worse for Miss Bengough. She certainly erred on the side of redundancy and general muchness, and if one must contrast abstract qualities, Oleron inclined to the austere in taste. Yes, here Oleron had made a distinct discovery. He wondered had he not made it before. He pictured Miss Bengough again as she had appeared that afternoon, large, showy, moistly pink, with that quality of the prized bloom exuding as it was from her, and instantly she suffered in his thought. He even recognised now that he had noticed something odd at the time, and that unconsciously his attitude, even while she had been there, had been one of criticism. The mechanism of her was a little obvious. Her melting humidity was a result of analysable processes, and behind her there had seemed to lurk some dim shape emblematic of mortality. He had never, during the ten years of their intimacy, dreamed for a moment of asking her to marry him. Nonetheless, he now felt for the first time a thankfulness that he hadn't done so. Then suddenly and swiftly his face flamed that he should be thinking thus of his friend. What Elsie Bengough, with whom he had spent weeks and weeks of afternoons, she the good chum, on whose help he would have counted that all the rest of the world failed him, she whose loyalty to him would not, he knew, swerve as long as there was breath in her, Elsie, to be even in thought dissected thus, he was an ingrate and a cad. Had she been there in that moment, he would have abased himself before her. For ten minutes and more he sat, still gazing into the fire, 
with that humiliating red fading slowly from his cheeks. All was still within and without, save for a tiny musical tinkling that came from his kitchen, the dripping of water from an imperfectly turned-off tap into the vessel beneath it. Mechanically he began to beat with his finger to the faintly heard falling of the drops. The tiny, regular movement seemed to hasten that shameful withdrawal from his face. He grew cool once more, and when he resumed his meditation, he was all unconscious that he took it up again at the same point. It was not only her florid superfluity of build that he had approached in the attitude of criticism, he was conscious also of the wide differences between her mind and his own. He felt no thankfulness that up to a certain point their natures had ever run companionably side by side. He was now full of questions beyond that point. Their intellects diverged, there was no denying it, and looking back, he was inclined to doubt whether there had been any real coincidence. True, he had read his writings to her, and she had appeared to speak comprehendingly and to the point, but what can a man do, who, having assumed that another sees as he does, is suddenly brought up sharp by something that falsifies and discredits all that has gone before? He doubted all now. It did for a moment occur to him that the man who demands of a friend more than can be given to him is in danger of losing that friend. But he put the thought aside. And he ceased to think, and again moved his finger to the distant dripping of the tap. And now, he resumed by and by, if these things were true of Elsie Bengough, they were also true of the creation of which she was the prototype, Romilly Bishop. And since he could say of Romilly what for very shame he could not say of Elsie, he gave his thoughts rein. He did so in that smiling, fire-lighted room to the accompaniment of the faintly heard tap. There was no longer any doubt about it. He hated the central character of his novel. Even as he had described her physically, she overpowered the senses. She was coarse-fibred, over-coloured, rank. It became true the moment he formulated his thoughts. Gulliver had described the Brobdingnagian maids of honour thus, and mentally and spiritually she corresponded, was unsensitive, limited, common. The model, he closed his eyes for a moment, the model struck out through fifteen vulgar and blatant chapters to such a pitch that without seeing the reason he had been unable to begin the sixteenth, he marvelled that it had only just dawned upon him. And this was to have been his Beatrice, his vision, as Elsie she was to have gone into the furnace of his art, and she was to come out the woman all men desire. Her thoughts were to have been culled from his own finest, her form from his dearest dreams, and her setting wherever he could find one fit for her worth. He had brooded long before making the attempt. Then one day he had felt a stir within him, as a mother feels a quickening, and he had begun to write, and so he had added chapter to chapter and those fifteen sodden chapters were what he had produced. Again he sat, softly moving his finger, and he bestirred himself. She must go, all fifteen chapters of her, that was settled. For what was to take her place, his mind was a blank, but one thing at a time. A man is not excused from taking the wrong course, because the right one isn't immediately revealed to him. Better would come if it was to come. In the meantime, he rose, fetched the fifteen chapters and read them over before he should drop them into the fire. But instead of putting them into the fire, he let them fall from his hand. He became conscious of the dripping of the tap again. It had a tinkling gamut of four or five notes, 
on which it rang irregular changes, and it was foolishly sweet and dulcimer-like. In his mind, Oleron could see the gathering of each drop, its little tremble on the lip of the tap, and the tiny percussion of its fall, plink, plunk, minimised almost to inaudibility. Following the lowest note, there seemed to be a brief phrase, irregularly repeated, and presently Oleron found himself waiting for the recurrence of this phrase. It was quite pretty. But it did not conduce to wakefulness, and Oleron dozed over his fire. When he awoke again, the fire had burned low, and the flames of the candles were licking the rims of the Sheffield sticks. Sluggishly he rose, yawned, went his nightly round of door locks and window fastenings, and passed into his bedroom. Soon he slept soundly. But a curious little sequel followed on the morrow. Mrs. Barrett usually tapped, not at his door, but at the wooden wall beyond which lay Oleron's bed, and then Oleron rose, put on his dressing gown, and admitted her. He was not conscious that as he did so that morning he hummed an air, but Mrs. Barrett, lingering with her hand on the doorknob and her face a little averted and smiling, Dear me, a soft falsetto rose, but that will be a very old tune, Mr. Oleron. I will not have heard it these forty years. What tune? Oleron asked. That tune, indeed, that you was humming, sir. Oleron had his thumb in the flap of a letter. It remained there. I was humming. Sing it, Mrs. Barrett. Mrs. Barrett prut-prutted. I have no voice for singing, Mr. Oleron. It was Anne Pugh who was the singer of our family. But the tune will be very old, and it is called The Beckoning Fair One. Try to sing it, said Oleron, his thumb still in the envelope. And Mrs. Barrett, with much dimpling and confusion, hummed the air. They do say it was sung to a harp, Mr. Oleron, and it will be very old, she concluded. And I was singing that. Indeed you was. I would not be likely to tell you lies. With a very well, let me have breakfast, Oleron opened his letter, but the trifling circumstance struck him as more odd than he would have admitted to himself. The phrase he had hummed had been that which he had associated with the falling from the tap on the evening before. 